You know, there are, are times um, when, you know, one of the things that, just so you guys know how stuff tends to happen as I think through what we're going to be discussing, and, and so I planned out most of the year um, in, in what the sermon topics were going to be, and, and so Rick has a copy of the spreadsheet that I work from, and he plans all these things, and he scours scripture and studies it. And, and I got to tell you, this morning as we were thinking, I was thinking through the sermon and all the things that we're going to be discussing and, and just how appropriate, especially that last song was, for this chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Steve, can you go back just for a moment to that last verse that we sang? Um, a little bit farther back. Sorry, obviously a little bit farther back. One more. There you go. So here's, here's what I want you to see just real briefly. God's purposes will, will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. By the way, this was written centuries ago and then kind of redone and updated. Um, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower as God produces in us and through us what he's trying to accomplish. Let's, let's look at the next one. Blind, un, blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his works in vain. Think about this. Those words, blind unbelief. So often we just want to say, no, God, I don't think you're there. I am going to cross my arms and just choose blindly to to ignore all the things that are out there. So often people think that faith is blind. One of the things we're going to see is that faith is not blind. But look at this last pair of lines. Actually, go back, Steve. Sorry. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Have you ever run into those times when people have tried to tell you, oh, God is doing this. You must have this problem. You must have this sin in your life because God would be blessing you if you would just trust him. And one of the things we have to see and one of the things I think we're going to see in this chapter is that God is in his perfect timing will interpret all the things that he has allowed to happen. So some people might just say, you got to have faith. You got to have faith. Now, if, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you might be thinking, ah, that sounds like a song by a guy named George Michael. Gotta have faith, 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 right? Except the challenging part is, I don't, you know, I was going back over the lyrics and I I had that song like worming through my head all week long. It's like, well, what is he really saying? George Michael was holding out hope for a better relationship than one he's about to leave. That doesn't sound very faithful to me. Or maybe that phrase, you got to have faith, makes you think of some piece of inspirational art. Something challenging you to let your faith be bigger than your fear. Some people talk about faith in a political party or having faith in the political process. Some people talk about faith as a fancy way of saying guts or intestinal fortitude. Just believe, have faith. But the faith that we're talking about today is more than that. It's more than guts or motivation. It's more than grit 
It's more than wishful thinking or vague hope. The faith we're talking about today is foundational to our relationship with God and our walk in the world. Now, before we dive into Hebrews chapter 11, I want to take us a step back for just a moment. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus ushered in a new covenant. He ushered in a, a better covenant. And in response to that, it should, we should act differently. The new covenant could, should, should cause our acts to change. And we talked about that as being our approach to God. Now we have access to God so we can approach God clearly. We talked about clinging to our confession, clinging to that hope that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We talked about the way that that clinging should cause us to think about one another and encourage one another, be able to consider how to spur one another on to love and good works. And then finally, we learned that our acts should include sticking to it by faith, sticking to our confession, sticking to one another, sticking to this life we live by faith. And then the closing verse of, of Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 10 says this. It says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith faith and preserve their souls. And then the writer of Hebrews, as he turns the page to chapter 11, it's the chapter we all know as being the faith chapter. It's the great hall of faith. Faith becomes the main point. Faith becomes the the hallmark of what he's getting at in chapter 11. As he provides example after example of men and women who have lived by faith and how that was manifested in their lives. But before we get there, I want to take one more step back because as I was, as I've been thinking about this, I've been a little bit convicted that I missed something. Here we are. We've done 10 chapters in Hebrews and I missed something that should be very plain. You see, we've mentioned before that the writer of Hebrews was writing to Jewish background believers. We didn't miss that. He's writing to people who were followers of Christ, but they were culturally Jewish and they used to follow the old sacrificial system. And we've talked about how they were being pressured to return and, and they were being pressured to go back to that old system. But this week, as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about their culture and I was, I was having a conversation with a missionary who was heading to the Middle East, I realized that the thing that I missed is this. And if you want to take notes, it's, this is the first blank in your outline. They, these first century believers, lived in an honor-shame culture. They lived in an honor-shame culture. And you might say, well, what in the world is an honor-shame culture? What is that? And, And rightly so, because as Americans and as Westerners, we don't get it. We can easily miss this because we read Scripture with Western eyes. We read Scripture with an American cultural bent. We read Scripture and assume that they did things the way that we would do things. They think about things the way that we think about things because they were human and we're human. So they must think like we do. We as Westerners or as Americans tend to make decisions based on what is best for me. 
A friend of mine used to say, WIIFM is the most popular radio station. What's in it for me? We tend to think of the consequences only in as much as they impact the decision maker, the one making that decision, and those closest to them, maybe. But ultimately, if it's good for me, it's, good. it's, it's the right move. But in an honor-shame culture, they are very communal. They think about life in community. They think about life as a village. They think about life in family. The decisions that are made are generally evaluated by how they bring honor or how they shame the family, how they honor or shame the culture, the community. And there may be some variation from one community to, community to another, but there's this communal pressure that is applied through parents or grandparents on the next generation in order to keep the family name honored or the tribe in good standing with other tribes. You see, we, we see this most clearly in Eastern and, and Middle Eastern cultures. I, I have a friend who's from Japan. And uh, they, in many ways, have a, this honor-shame type culture. And when she moved to the States to go to school, her family was elevated. Her family was honored by that decision. Well, as she was here, she began meeting some Christians and began interacting with Christians and began to think, wow, this is beautiful. The gospel is great. And she, be, she became a follower of Christ. Well, now her, her decision to come to the States to be educated that honored her family is now turned to shame as a Christian. And so at various times, she's been shunned by her parents. She's been, you know, they won't talk to her at times. They won't see her. And yet she's the one who's providing the best care for them in their later years. Honor, shame. We don't get it because their religious system said, no, if you do this, you know, they believed in some ancestral worship and, and things like that. And, and so now she is totally disregarding that. Well, that system is keeping her locked in, keeping them locked into something that is really culturally driven. This is why in the Middle East it is so difficult for people to walk away from Islam to become followers of Christ because of that communal pressure. We can sort of kind of get a sense of this with cancel culture. Have you guys heard about cancel culture? Has anyone been canceled? I, I don't know. I don't know if I have, if they, I don't know. Essentially, cancel culture shames or ignores or publicly ridicules someone who steps outside of what the general cultural thinking should be. And, and really, in essence, it's, it's more of a nuisance, more noise than substance. But here's a couple of examples, not Christian examples. Martina Navratilova, the, one of the best women's tennis players of all time. She happens to be a lesbian. And she has spoken out against trans women playing against women in tennis. Well, you know what? She, even though she was an advocate for that LGBTQ community, now they've shunned her because, no, you're not living up to everything. You've disgraced the, the T's in that LGBTQ community. Plus, plus, plus. 
The same thing has happened with people like uh, the Harry Potter author, J.K. Rowling, or the comedian who's um, the comedian Dave Chappelle. Because they chose to have positions that were different than everybody else had. Now they've been shunned. Now they've, they're being called out. Now people are saying, oh, you can't listen to their stuff. Now you can't pay attention to what they're saying. Now, I'm not in endorsing those people necessarily, but I want you to see how, how this honor-shame stuff is, has sort of permeated a bit into American culture. But you know what? Most of the time, we can just say, eh, forget it. I'm not going to pay attention to what they're saying. It's sort of like um, Charlie Brown's teacher and parent. Right? But really, we're only scratching the surface of this honor-shame thing. And I think it's difficult for us to truly understand it as Westerners. Until we get immersed into that. Until we can see the world through their eyes. But, but thinking back to the book of Hebrews and the audience into which the author was writing, their honor-shame culture was not simply a first century phenomenon. This was something that went all the way back. In fact, if we could go back to the book of Genesis, which the author does... And he goes back to the book of Genesis and he helps people see, here's how people lived by faith, even though they were being shamed into doing something different. This was the, the communal nature of the Middle Eastern culture has had been an issue for the people of God from the opening pages of Scripture. And that is why I think some people call this the hall of faith, because it's this hall of people who stood up by faith against those pressures that they experienced around them. And I think this is the faith that Hebrews 11 is really talking about. So let's consider faith and, and the challenge that we have to follow the faithful. You see, the next blank in your outline is faith, dot, dot, dot. The writer of Hebrews describes faith in that very first verse. And we heard Charlotte read that a few minutes ago. And he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or another translation says, uh, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Faithful is, faith is not, uh, not hopeful confidence or optimism. Faith is assurance and conviction. It's, it's, it's not vague or fuzzy. See, we have to keep in mind that the object of our faith is not us. It's so much of the, the, that motivational art, so much of what our culture wants to say is, well, look within you and find that thing to be hopeful for. Find your faith there. Really, the object of our faith is God, the triune God, his word and his sovereign plan in the universe. Beginning to look, even as, as we sang just a few minutes ago, beginning to see and understand how God is interpreting his work in the world and in our lives. And then over the next several verses, the writer of Hebrews chronicles so many ways that people have lived by faith contrary to cultural trends. And pressures. One of the things that we learn about faith in this chapter is, is, is the next thing you'll see, and that is faith is the means of approval. Faith is the means of approval. Faith is the means by which we are commended to God or accepted into a relationship with Him. And I think this is because faith that is lived out, it demonstrates trust. 
Think about this. Do you remember, those of you guys who are parents, you remember when your kids were little and you would take them swimming and, and they were afraid of the water and you try to get them out there. Well, the, then you go and you stand at the, in, inside the water a few feet in and, and you're hoping they're going to jump to you, right? And they, they, they jump, but you have to go really close. And then maybe right as they're going, you take a step back. Because you want them to, to have faith, to trust that you are going to do what you said you will do, that you, you will catch them. But faith has to be lived out. Do they believe you? Hebrews 11.2 says, For by this, by faith, our ancestors were approved. And as we continue reading through the chapter, we learn that God accepted Abel because he gave a better gift, because of his gift, because he trusted that God wanted a blood sacrifice. And so Abel's gift was elevated over his brother. We also learn that Enoch was accepted because his faith was demonstrated in how he lived. He had such a walk with God. I just Enoch is one of my favorite characters, favorite people in all of Scripture. I would love to have a walk with God like that. Just to be able to kind of hang out. Say, God, when you're ready, take me. But the writer of Hebrews concludes the chapter in this way. Look at what it says in Hebrews 11, 39 to 40. And although they were all approved through their faith, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Now, there's so much in that verse that we could really unpack. But think about this. All these people, these heroes of the faith, people in the past didn't get to see all the things that God had promised because they were, they were waiting. Those promises were for us as well. And there's something mysterious, I think, in, this, in that, you know, the implication of our faith and our involvement in that faith because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But I think the bottom line is this, that we are approved by faith not by our works. You, you see, we can only enter into a right relationship with God through faith. It begins with belief. It begins with belief in who God is, belief in what Jesus has done and how he took our sin on himself, paying the punishment, paying the consequences that we deserve. Now, if you happen to read over this chapter earlier this week or you've been scanning it while we've been talking you might be thinking, there's a lot of talk about faith, but these people did works. And I'm glad you noticed that. They did live out their faith, but I think there's a, there's, here's a big difference in perspective or attitude. So there's two, two sides to this. One side says, am I trying to win approval from God by how I live? Is that how I'm approved or commended or acceptable to God? Or am I living differently because I've been approved by God through faith? From the outside, we could look at two people living life the very same way, very moral and upstanding. They're going to church. They're doing all these things. And they might look exactly the same. One is condemned to hell. And one 
is approved by God. And that, that difference, all that difference is, is faith. Faith. In the very next book of the Bible, the book of James summarizes this beautifully in James 2.26 where he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we see that this faith or confidence in God is the way that we gain approval from God. We take him in his word and then order our lives in light of what he has told us around his ways. But we also see that faith is the way to please God. Faith is the way to please God. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And in, in many ways, this idea of pleasing God comes back to the idea of faith that is lived out. Do I think I am approved or accepted by my works? Is it what I've done? Or is it faith in what Christ has done for me? How I live reveals the focus of my faith. But notice that it begins with believing that God exists. It begins with believing that God is. Do you believe there's a God? The book of Romans tells us that God's qualities have been revealed since the beginning of the universe. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, people who would doubt, are without excuse. Elsewhere in Scripture, Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork but you might be thinking isn't it predictable for scripture to be consistent and to say things about itself so that you would always go back and isn't that kind of circular reasoning and and i want to just encourage you yes it is because the bible should be consistent if it's going to say one thing here it should say one thing elsewhere but the bible's view on the universe doesn't have to be the only source of commentary but it should inform our faith. There was a podcast I listened to this week, and, and it, was, it was very interesting. The, the, the speaker, his name is Al Mohler, he was talking about a, a, a physicist, and I'm, I, this is a rabbit trail that I don't want to go dive too far down. Um, but he was talking about a, a professor, his name is Brian Cox, and, and Cox made the news recently when he, when he stated that if the earth is destroyed or if life on earth is snuffed out completely, our entire universe, our entire galaxy will be without sentient or knowledgeable beings. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons he was arguing is that because there are so few places where there is inhabitable, you know, so few planets where life can actually happen. So few places where planets like Earth are just the right distance from the sun and just the right place in, in relation to other planets that there can actually be life held together. So his point is, take care of the Earth so that we're not snuffed out and our universe is without knowledgeable, without 
thinking beings. I think our, our response, though, should be, man, if the universe is that precise, that if we were just a couple degrees further away from the sun or a couple degrees closer to the sun, that there would be no life on earth, that, man, we have got a God who is exactly doing what he needs to do. He designed this beautifully. As, as Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens know that God had to get it exactly right for there to be life on this blue planet. And oh, praise be to God that he has done that. And so the question still comes back to, do you believe in God? Because that is the beginning of faith. We must believe that he is. And then he rewards those who seek him. But we also see in this chapter that faith in God gives us a new identity. Hebrews eleven thirteen said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, their identity changed from citizen to stranger or alien, from resident to exile. You see, it's so easy for us to become uh, identified with our location, with our career, with our family. And rightly so, because those things should identify us. But one of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that God has made certain promises to these heroes of the faith. And in making these promises, he called them to step out, to step away from their family, to, to move away from what they knew into what he was promising them in the future. God brought to fruition some of those promises, but some of his promises extended far beyond their lives. For example, think about this. One of the first guys that the writer of Hebrews talks about here in chapter 11 is Abraham. God had called Abraham out of his father's land and moved him away from a place where he was identified. So he was known as being from the Ur of, Ur of the Chaldeans. And yet he moved away from there, away from his father's hand to a place that he had never been before because God had told him, I have an inheritance for you there. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, or I'm sorry, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram identified himself with God and God's promises so that even at 75 years old, he knew that God was still faithful. Think about what his life was like. I, I think Abram was pretty comfortable in, in Haran where, where he lived. He was with his father's house. He, he, he had a wife. They had no kids, but they were quite wealthy. And yet God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. So go. So like, okay, I'll go. Now, these guys, they lived a lot longer than we do today. Some people are saying we're going to get closer to that and we'll see. But at 75 years old with no kids, Abram believed that God was good for his word. 
And he stepped out, not knowing he would live another hundred years. He moved and trusted God. His identity was in God. Or think about Moses. Moses, if you remember his story, they were killing all the babies in Egypt. And Moses was put into the river in a little basket. And the princess found him. And, and, you know, she adopted him basically as uh, her own son. But he was raised by his mother, nursed and weaned by his mother. And so he knew his family was different than the royal family that he was adopted into. And the book of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I think the first century audience of this book Their community thought that they were identified. They believed that they were identified with the promises of God by maintaining the religious rituals that they were clinging to. But these believers, these Jewish background believers had moved beyond that. They had come to believe that that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus coming and they believed that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And that he ushered in a perfect covenant because of the perfect sacrifice. So these unbelieving Jews were now shaming their believing family members into returning. And in some ways it's not unlike what we might experience today. Some people have the mindset of live and let live. You do you. I'll do me. What's good for you is, is fine. But there are others who are those who may be close to us for whom the faith in Jesus feels like a fairy tale. And our faith seems to them like wishful thinking. A weak solution to life's challenges. But I want to encourage you what the writer of Hebrews is saying in in these verses in Hebrews 11 is that faith in Jesus Christ is everything. It's worth losing everything for Him. So there's one one other thing, one final thing we see here, that faith is the fuel of our actions. Faith becomes the motivation for all that we do. Warren Wiersbe wrote a, a whole bunch of commentaries, and his commentary on the book of Hebrews is entitled, Be Confident. And he reflects on these heroes of the faith and how they demonstrated faith in, in beautiful ways. And, and for him, being a good pastor and a good writer, he likes to alliterate things. So here's kind of his summary of, of all these heroes of the faith and how faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is lived out. You see, what we see is faith worshiping through Abel. We see faith walking through Enoch. We see faith working with Noah as he built the ark and as he did something that nobody was expecting to be done. We see faith waiting in the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as hundreds of years passed before God finally brought to fruition some of the things that he had promised. We see faith warring with Moses as he led the people out of Egypt. We see faith winning 
with Joshua and Rahab as, as the people of Israel finally made it into the promised land. All of these heroes trusted God. They believed in Him. They believed in His promises. Some of those promises are still yet to be fulfilled. And we are looking forward to one day when they will all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when He returns. But let me close with just a a couple final things. What is following Christ, living by faith, worth to you? The writer of Hebrews closes his chapter with a summary of what those who've gone before have experienced. He says, what more shall I say? This is Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. For what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I love this phrase. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. See, I think the author of of Hebrews is challenging his first century readers to stay the course. He's challenging them, saying the cost, whatever shame you're experiencing, is worth it to stick it out. The shame and shunning that we might endure for the sake of our faith is worth it because the promises of God, because the eternal hope that we have is so much greater. And next week, we're going to kind of take the next logical conclusion as we get to Hebrews 12. But let me just give us a little foretaste of what's coming. In Hebrews 12, 1, the writer says, Therefore, because of all these people, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this cloud of witnesses, these heroes of the faith are there watching, but there's someone else who is watching. Someone else who's watching how we live. Someone else who's watching how we release those, that clinging sin. Someone else who faced shame. Someone else who suffered for the kingdom of God. We see that in Hebrews 12 too. Fixing, looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame that he received from his culture, from his family. Remember, his family didn't, not all of his family members believed him. Despising the shame, Jesus did that. And is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus initiated our faith in the very beginning of time. He completed or perfected or finished our faith on the cross. 
He is the one in whom we believe. He is the perfect example of how we live by faith. He is the object of our faith. He is our means of approval. He is the means by which we please God. He is, gives us a new identity. Faith in Jesus Christ fuels our action. Beloved, live by faith. Follow the example of the faithful. Follow the example of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for those who have gone before. Thank you for their faithfulness to you. Thank you for, for their faithfulness to endure suffering and shame, endure ridicule. And God, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who truly honor you as we live by faith. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.